0: Thank you, Miram, for that reading today. Uh, So today's lesson is going to be all about what's a cubit. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Well, today we're continuing in our series, The Whole Story. Uh, As a church, as Christians, what Christians believe in, we are a church for skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Jesus. Uh, So some of you might be curious, what do Christians think about the Bible? That's what this series is about. As a church, as Christians, we believe the Bible is uniquely equipped to inform us. It is, it is the authoritative text on all matters of faith. And so this year, we're preaching through the Bible from cover to cover, from beginning to end. And today we're coming to the story of Noah. Now I want to say something just briefly. Uh, I have heard from so many of you who have taken us up on the invitation and challenge to read along with us. We have a whole story reading plan. We have this available just outside the doors here at the Y. This is available on our website in PDF format. I've heard from so many of you who are taking us up to read this, either in your community group. Uh, I talked to a husband and wife who said, Aaron, we've never read the Bible on our entire lives and we're doing this together this year. How cool is that? Uh, And even our, youth, our middle schoolers and high schoolers on Monday nights in their small group Bible studies right here at the Y uh, are reading, learning how to read the scriptures for themselves. It's a really exciting adventure for us. I hope you'll jump in with us if you are new. And to the middle schoolers doing that, I just want to say how proud I am of you guys. Kudos. I'm so excited to see what God's going to do in this year together. Well, the story of Noah that we just heard read is one of the most well-known stories and possibly most least understood stories in all of the Bible. Uh, whether you're a Bible person or not, whether you're a Christian or not, a church person or not, chances are you know something about this story of Noah, something about the flood. But our culture doesn't really know what to do with this story. We, we love to put this story into children's books with cute animals and little smiling Noah, kind of like this image here, right? Anybody have this particular book? All right, we'll get that up in just a second. Oh, there it is. Yes, doesn't that look cute? Doesn't it just look like a fun ride on the ark? That must have been a lot of fun. And then then our culture will actually read the story and realize, you know, this story's kind of dark. This is not really happy pappy. And so then they'll make movies like this one with Russell Crowe in it, which I think uh, is pretty dramatic. I don't know if anybody saw that Noah one. That is a... That's a dark film, y'all. I mean, it's kind of scary, right? We don't know what to do with this story. Today, maybe you come to this story and you heard it read aloud, or at least a portion of it, and you've got some questions. Aaron, why would a good God do something so bad like this? Or maybe you're asking, Aaron, did did this really happen? I mean, is this history or is this just kind of myth, right? Or or maybe you've heard about the idea that it might not have been a whole global flood. Maybe it was just the the known world at the time. Lots of questions. Or perhaps the most important question of all, if Noah really did save all the animals, why couldn't he have left the cats, male and female, behind? But all joking aside, Today, I hope to shed some light on this incredible story, a story that I think if we read it as it wants to be read, has something quite profound to teach us. Today, I'm going to be calling this message, God's great do-over, his mulligan. Now, the whole Noah account is found in chapters 6 through 9 in Genesis. It's a long story. We don't have time to read all of it aloud today, so I've broken it down into three parts. Uh, This is my own PPP plan, by the way. The first part is the problem. The second part is the plan. And the third part is the promise. So if you didn't qualify for PPP, you qualify this morning. Here we go. Part number one, the problem. The problem. What's the problem? What's the backstory? What's the setup that leads to this whole flood thing? Well, let's go back to the passage where it begins in verse 11. Let me read this to you again. Now, the earth was corrupt. Some of your translations might read Ruined or even spoiled. Now the earth was corrupt or ruined in God's sight and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted. There's our word again, their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence. There's that word again, because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. All right, that's a pretty crazy beginning here. Now, you might be saying, Aaron, hold on, time out. What happened to the good God and the nice God and the garden and all the goodness, right? What what happened? How did we get from it's all good to, man, this thing is so spoiled, it's so ruined, we just have to throw it away? Well, if you were with us last week, or if you've been reading along with us in the whole story, in the devotional plan, you might remember what Pastor Mitch talked about last week. You see, chapters 1 and 2 in Genesis are all about the goodness of creation. It's goodness, truth, and beauty. He created a world, He created a garden, and humanity's job was to care for that garden and to go and create more gardens like it in His creation, cultivating all that God had made. But by chapter 3, something had gone terribly wrong. Human beings had rejected God's wisdom. Instead, they did what they saw or thought was right in their own eyes. This rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. And this leads to some pretty bad stuff in the story. Shame, nakedness, jealousy, deceit. But what's really interesting is that the primary result, the number one result according to Genesis, the number one consequence of sin is violence. Violence runs rampant. Chapter four just plays this story out. It begins with Cain. You might remember Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons. Cain kills his brother Abel simply because he's jealous. But then it jumps to 10 generations later, hold that number, 10 generations, uh, and we come to meet a guy named Lamech. Lamech is actually going to be Noah's father. And Lamech is sitting around, and and he's decided to kind of break God's plan. He's got two wives, uh, and then he's boasting to his two wives about how he's killed people simply because they insulted him. And then he actually writes this little poem, this little spoken word, this little song, and it goes like this. Chapter four, verse 23, he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, he's talking about himself, is avenged 77 times, right? He's boasting in his violence. (laughs) What's the point? Well, things have gone from bad to worse. And the Bible is so clever about this, y'all. Notice there are 10 generations between Adam and Noah. Cain is said to seek vengeance seven times his offense. Lamech, 70 times, which is... 7 times 10. You see where I'm going with this? It's as if the author wants us to see that each generation, with each generation, the violence has multiplied. The violence has gotten worse. So that by the time we reach Lamech, it is absolutely out of control. Violence, wrongdoing, cruelty, injustice has multiplied like a virus and it is destroying God's creation. But it wasn't just human beings did you catch this in the story when Mary Robin read it? It's that in some way, this violence is destroying creation itself. In fact, the Bible, when speaks about it, says that this violence is ruining all of creation. You with me so far? Y'all with me on the setup here? This is simply the setup, simply the backstory, the problem for what is about to happen. Now, before we get to part two, the plan. I need to pause here because I got some fun emails from y'all this week. And I just need to tell you, I'm loving the emails I'm getting for the, with those of you reading the Bible with us. I had some people write me and they said, Aaron, I've never read the Bible before. I'm reading it for myself. What is the deal with people living to be 600, 700, 800 years old, right? Like, look, hip replacement is not going to solve it at that point, right? And I want to say a little bit of a word about this. Uh, some, some of the numbers stand out. A guy named Enoch... He's going to live to be 365 years. That's kind of interesting, same as the number of days in a a solar year. Uh, Lamech, the guy I've been talking about, he's going to live 777 years. That sounds kind of like there's more to that number than just what meets the eye. And then Noah, he's going to live well into his 900s. Now, how do we make sense of this? (laughs) I mean, if you're like me, you might read this and say, Aaron, this just makes me kind of want to throw the whole story out. Like, this is is just crazy talk, isn't it? Well, I want to give you three ways that Christians can read the ages on this. Because we want to take the Bible in its context. We want to read the Bible as it wants to be read. And there are three basic views that Christians hold on this. The first is simply that maybe, just maybe, somehow before the flood, people lived longer. Maybe they did, right? I mean, maybe there was less disease. There was more kale. I don't know what it is. You know, something like that. People live longer. And that's a possibility. The second view is that these ages actually represent not just the person, but their lineage, perhaps even their tribe. So you could think of it as their whole kind of, their whole crew, right? (laughs) That's kind of interesting. I think, well, maybe there's something to that. But the third is the one I find most intriguing because I think it kind of fits the story. I'll call this the Buzz Lightyear principle. Uh, you all remember what Buzz Lightyear says? What does Buzz Lightyear say? Beyond. To infinity and beyond, right? To infinity and beyond. Now, what's beyond, in, beyond infinity? I, I don't know. That doesn't even make sense, right? But we kind of get it. Like, he's, he's making a point that's not actually mathematical, right? Well, for the Hebrews, for, for the ancient Middle Eastern peoples, there was no concept of infinity when they wanted to talk about a really 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 long time they talked about a thousand years in fact if buzz lightyear was with them he would have said to a thousand years and beyond and they would have said what's beyond a thousand years it would have been the same kind of idea get the point here so watch this so many scholars think that some of the folks who live into their 900s, they're dying just shy of 1,000 years. It's Bible speak for saying this person lived a really, 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 really long time. They were very, very old, which is what my kids say to me when I try to play good music for them, right? <laughs> Dad, you're so old. It's true. Personally, personally. I don't worry about this question too much. Do you, do you get my tone here? I'm not trying to dismiss it. It's a good question. But there are lots of ways to think intelligently. There are lots of ways to think biblically about these kinds of things. It's fun to me to let the story kind of suggest how it wants to be read. All right, so let's get back to our point. The big idea in this first part is that the narrative is trying to connect Adam to Noah. That's what the first couple chapters are doing here. So how does God, oh, and, and, and to show us that things have gone from bad to worse, right? Remember Lamech, remember Cain to Lamech, seven to 77, you get the idea. All right, so here we go. How does God feel about all this stuff? Well, look with me at verse five, chapter six. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. How does God feel about all this? He's heartbroken. He's crushed. The word actually means he's grieving as if he has lost a loved one. This isn't the world God wanted. There's violence, there's oppression, there's wickedness. And he's like, I've got to do something about this. You see, the story of the flood is the story of just mercy. It's the story of God intervening to try and stop the runaway headlong slide of humanity into evil and chaos and violence. And you know, this can be hard for us as suburban American Christians. Because, you know, we, we, we kind of like the God of love, right? We like the God who, well, you know, he, he knows us. He, he made us in our mother's womb. Uh, he, he, has, he knows the plans he has for us to prosper us and not to harm us. We like that God. But the God of justice, that, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. You see, love and justice must go hand in hand. And what is God to do when his creatures begin harming one another. Well, uh, as the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who I highly commend to you, would say, if you, ha- you or your family have ever suffered oppression, racism, injustice, or violence, then you know that a God of love must also be a God of justice. To love someone who is in harm's way demands justice. So, So what does God do? How's he going to respond to all this? What's his plan? Well, let's look at the very next verse here, verses 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. He must have been speaking about cats. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What's happening here? Well, the old King James Version translates this first verb, I will wipe. It translates it, I will destroy. And I, I'm not trying to knock the King James Version, but in this case, that's a terrible translation. The word here simply means to rub, to, to wipe. The, the way you might wipe or rub away a dry erase board. You get that image? The way you might consider trying to clean or rub away a stain on a piece of a poultry. Or perhaps like this hopefully you've never had to do this, the way you might wipe your laptop when it is infected with a virus. I remember the first laptop I ever, not the first laptop, the first MacBook I ever had. I thought it was so cool. I finally graduated uh, from a Dell to to a MacBook. And uh, one day I I was working on it and it just froze on me. And, And I got the wheel of death. You all know the wheel of death that just spins and spins and spins. It looks like the wheel of fortune, but it's the wheel of bad fortune, right? That's a... And so I I'd rebooted I did everything, I ran, I scanned it, just, I just kept getting Wheel of Death, so I went to the Genius Bar at the Mac store, and I took it in, and the guy said, yeah, you know, this thing's so infected, we're just going to have to wipe everything, download all of your files from the cloud, and then you'll be good to go again. And I said, so tell me, what is this cloud you speak of, right? <laughs> I learned the lesson of the cloud a very, very hard way. So today, actually, if you get nothing else from the sermon and you have not backed up your files to the cloud, thus saith the Lord. Okay, Go, going back up to the cloud right now. You see, the picture we get here in Genesis 6 is the picture of God facing the problem of the virus of sin. It has contaminated his world. And so God decides that the best thing, the only thing he can do is to wipe it clean, to reboot. And it's here that we finally meet Noah. God is going to flood the earth, but he's going to back up Noah and his family to the cloud. He's going to save them from the cloud. Oh, come on, that was so good. Wasn't that good? I, all right. Moving on. Now, why did God choose Noah? Why did he choose Noah? Well, we don't really know. The text simply says that God had favor. The same word could be grace there. God had favor or grace on him. We're told that Noah was a righteous man, but we know that later in the story, Noah makes some mistakes. Noah was not perfect. Being righteous just means that you are in right relationship with God. And maybe it was just that. Maybe it was that Noah was willing to trust God. He was willing to obey and follow God in doing this crazy thing of building this boat, which, by the way, took him 100 years to complete. Now, what exactly was God's plan? Well, God's going to take a redo, right? We've been talking about a mulligan, a do-over. Maybe what didn't work the first time with Adam is actually going to work this time with Noah. But watch this, because I think one of the coo- this is one of the coolest things in the story. God is going to take Noah and his wife and his, their th- his three sons and their wives, the eight of them, and they're going to quarantine inside of the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. And just as the world was created in Genesis 1, by separating the water's from above, from the waters from below, God is going to reverse that and let the waters rescind in a kind of baptism, a kind of washing away, wiping away of all of the sin with this little garden of Eden called the ark right in the middle. Do you get that picture? God's going to redo the whole thing and Noah will be his mulligan. Noah will be his new Adam. Just like Genesis 1, the ark is a kind of garden. You could think of the ark as Eden 2.0. It's got everything Noah and his family will need. It's got animals. It's got food. It's got the world's largest pooper scooper. The only problem is, the only problem is, it doesn't work. The reboot doesn't work. The minute Noah and his family get off the boat, it becomes clear that the problem is still there. Noah plants a garden. Do you see the connection back to Genesis 1? He plants a vineyard in that garden. He gets hammered on the wine from those grapes, and he ends up walking around the village naked. True story. Go read it in Genesis, right? But worst of all, the violence is still there. Noah ends up cursing his own son. And we discover that the reboot did not work because the virus of sin is still present in Noah's Heart. I want to pause here because I think in our world today, we can suffer from a kind of do-over, a kind of redo illusion, a kind of redo fantasy oh, I just need a fresh start. I just need to, I just need to get rid of that and, 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 and do it all over again. You know that first marriage? Eh, that I probably married the wrong person. Maybe the next one will be easier. Or you know what, that last friendship? I don't need to work through that. I'm just going to ditch that one and go get a new one. Or you know that church? It's kind of, well, then, you know, that pastor? I don't know. I'm going to ditch that and go find. We, we believe this redo is somehow going to change things. But what we discover is that the virus of sin in our hearts follows us into every redo. <laughs> we quickly discover that what we need is not a redo, but a redeemer, which brings us to the final part of Noah's story, the promise. Look with me at what it says here in Genesis 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. What's happening here? God is making a promise. God knew that the redo would not work. But he allows the redo to play out for our sake. So that we might come to see that we need more than a redo. We need a redeemer. God makes a promise. And the sign of that promise, the symbol of that promise, is a rainbow you see, God in this story is pointing forward to a new kind, a completely new kind of salvation that he will bring. And the clue for us is right here in verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The great theologian and writer Charles Spurgeon was the first I know of to point out the fact that the word used here in Hebrew for bow is not the word that means rainbow. Rainbow. It's the word gesed. It's the word that means war bow or battle bow, compound bow. A rainbow, of course, is shaped like a war bow, isn't it? But what God says is that the rainbow shows us that he has laid down his war bow in the heavens. He has literally hung up his war bow because he will not use it against the world again. You see, in our world, God won't accomplish ultimate salvation by shooting his arrows of wrath into men and women again. As Spurgeon points out, if you look at this rainbow like a bow, we have a picture of a rainbow here. You will notice that the bow is pointed where? It is pointed back at the heavens. God will one day wipe out evil from the earth He will deal with the sin virus once and for all, but he will do so not by firing his arrows of judgment on creation, but by shooting the arrows of judgment and receiving them himself. And it's here, right here in Noah's story, that we begin to see the hints of Jesus right in the book of Genesis. You see, Jesus as we will get there, will one day come. He will come like Noah, but he will be an even better Noah. Like Noah, Jesus will obey God even when others are mocking him. Only Jesus will do it perfectly and to the end. Like Noah's ark, Jesus will provide a way for us to be saved from the waters of judgment and death. But unlike Noah, Noah's boat, which floated above the waters, Jesus will enter into the waters of death himself on our behalf that we might be saved. And finally, like Noah, Jesus will emerge from the storm of judgment to begin a new creation. But unlike Noah, this new race will not have hearts infected by the virus of sin and violence. They will be new creations with new hearts and new spirits redeemed, formed in the image and likeness of Jesus. You see, the story of Noah is a story that points to Jesus. Like the bow in the sky, it points to his grace and salvation. So, what do we do with that, (laughs) right? Okay, Aaron, wow, I don't know. That's some interesting take on Noah there. It's a little bit different than the children's book I read, you know, last week. What, What do we do with this? Where do you find yourself in this story? Well, I want to suggest three places we might find ourselves. And the first is this. Noah's story, it first offers us a chance to reflect on the problem of sin in our own hearts. Where the virus of sin is bringing violence and discord for us. Where might you be failing to love God or to love your neighbor as yourself? Where has jealousy or bitterness or even hatred taken root in your relationships? The first invitation is just an invitation to pause and to search our hearts. The second invitation in Noah's story is this. It's a chance to recognize that we need more than just a redo. We need a Redeemer see, God loves second chances. He does. He's a God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. But it is never a chance that we are going to be able to dig ourselves out of the own hole we find ourselves in. We will never be able to uproot the virus of sin in our hearts by ourselves. It is only with the help of a redeemer. It is only by the power of God's spirit that we can be made new. Which brings us to the third reflection, which is this. It's an opportunity for us to pause and receive the gift of forgiveness and new life that Jesus offers. You see, receiving forgiveness, receiving this new life, this is not just a one-time thing. It is the work of salvation that God does in our lives. It's an ongoing work of Jesus. Jesus is forgiving and healing and recreating of our hearts. So if you've never asked God for God's forgiveness, you could take that first step today. You could say, God, would you come? Would you come and redeem my heart? Would you come and forgive my heart? Would you come and cleanse me of this virus? But even if you've taken that step, maybe today is a chance for you to take that step again, a third, fourth, or fifth step. Say, God, would you come and uproot this jealousy, this bitterness, this anger, this hurt, this hatred from me? God, where do I need your redemption and your life in my heart? See, Jesus, it will come, and he will come again, and he will be better than Noah. He will be the more perfect Noah, the one who can save us from the storm of judgment. Can we pray? Jesus, I'm so thankful that you did not come into this world to condemn it, but to save it. And today we thank you for your work on the cross that makes that possible. Jesus, we thank you. We worship you because you have offered that salvation to us. And today we ask you to cleanse us again, to forgive us again, to create in us a renewed heart. And would you renew your spirit in us? And would you walk closely with us today?